Dr. R.J. Rushduni, RR161D in 214. Signed V.S. Conspiracy. From the Easy Chair, excellent colloquies on various subjects. This is R.J. Rushduni, Easy Chair number 326, November the 2nd, 1994. In this hour, Douglas Murray, Mark Rushduni, and I will uh, deal with the subject of sin versus conspiracy. I feel this is a very important subject because I continually get letters and even books from people who are trying to persuade me that uh, everything in our world today is to be explained by some conspiracy and conspirators who are manipulating things. When I pick up and read uh, leftist literature, they have the same idea about conservatives and Christians. In fact, there are more than a few people who believe that Christian Reconstruction is some kind of deep and devious conspiracy. And there's nothing you can say to change their mind because they believe that everything is a conspiracy by someone or other to overthrow the order, their order, and as a result is to be damned for that reason. Well, I believe that as Christians we can say that while there may be and are very often all kinds of conspiracies and always have been in history, the basic problem is sin. This is a problem that everybody has to deal with in their lives. And only the Christian has a victory over sin, and therefore only Christians can be the movers and shakers whose work does not pass away. We believe in terms of scripture that Man's sin is his attempt to be as God, to play God, and try to manipulate others and to bring about his self-chosen goals. And of course, this means that this will to be God is basic to all conspiracies. Conspirators, men who plan to accomplish something, are people who want to play God. But we have to say that their basic problem is their sin, and their unwillingness to come to grips with that is what leads them into the futile, destructive, and evil conspiracies that have littered history. Well, with that introduction, Douglas, would you like to comment? Well, the uh, uh, lust for power is uh, baffles a lot of people. They see political candidates 
spending thirty million dollars for a job that pays a hundred thousand dollars a year. Uh, I mean, if most people thought about that, that's not a very good bargain by any means. But uh, in terms of power, lust for power, that seems to be the uh, the end game for people that uh, want to get into politics. They want to. Uh, control the lives of others. They want to play God. And uh, the um, the ante has steadily risen in politics over the years to the point where it's ridiculous the amount of money that people spend for public office. And uh, that's one of the reforms I think that should be, there should be a limit to how much people been to uh, run for public office. Who was that? Uh, there was a senator one time from Wisconsin or something that uh, he only spent, wouldn't spend over a hundred dollars. Uh, I can't remember that fellow's name. Uh, he, he used to come out with this list of, uh, of uh, oh, yes, wasteful spending I'm, of the I'm, federal I'm, government. Yes, yes. Uh, I and, know who you mean. And uh, nobody picked it up uh, as a subject for reform. But uh, the politics now in Washington has become a blood sport. It's no longer about governing. Uh, it's no longer about trying to uh, do things for society which society cannot do uh, on its own uh, infrastructure, those types of things. Uh, they've gone beyond that, and uh, I think the uh, the culmination of that was Henry Kissinger's comment that power is the ultimate aphrodisiac, and you see well-intentioned young politicians go to Washington, and within two or three terms, they're completely corrupted. They don't want to leave. Uh, they've become intoxicated with the the elixir of power spending other people's money, huge sums of money. They throw billions around as if they were uh, dollar bills, and uh, they lose all sense of proportion to what real life is all about. A considerable proportion of men who are voted out of office remain in Washington to seek a job in a bureaucracy, a law firm, or as a lobbyist because they want to be close to what they regard as the center of power. Mm -hmm. They see the center of power as manipulation of peoples, not as something religious and uh, basically God-centered. Well, conspiracy is, isn't a motive. Uh, conspiracy has to have a motive behind it, and if we're assuming, for instance, wealth or power is a motive, then men's men's reasons for wanting power or wanting wealth may be varied. Columbus, for instance, wanted wealth. He wanted it to um, institute a new crusade to the Holy Land. Other men want wealth for power. If men get together for a particular purpose, as men do, they do conspire, their motives may very differ, very often differ. 
They may fall to arguing. Some may do in a conspirator. So to, to look to the conspiracy for the source of, of everything and as the governing factor behind Hall of History um, misses much of the point. Uh, it's the motives of men, and motives come from men's heart. I was just happen. I'm writing an article for the Calcedon Report, and I was happen. It happens to be on uh, a passage in James. Um, James picks a rather innocuous um, fault that most people commit all the time. He says, um, he talks about a man planning a, a, a trip to a, a faraway city for a year to to do business to buy and sell. And he says, that's foolish, because you don't know if you're even going to be allow, alive tomorrow. Okay, But if God wills it. So we have to take into two accounts in all of our plannings, assuming it even it's, if it's a good purpose, in all of our planning we have to take into account that our, our life is in God's hands. Therefore, certainly our plans must be in terms of God's wills. Our life is in God's hand, and nothing we do is going to happen unless it's in God's will. So the fallacy behind conspiracy is that conspiracy says that a few select men are governing history. Evil men very often have an influence on, on, on history. But this is an evil world, and evil men are going to always have an impact. It's easier to have an evil impact on history than a, than a good impact and a moral impact on history. So they will have an impact. That's the price we pay for living in a sinful world. And they don't control things, and one day they'll stand before God in judgment, and their plans will fall to dust. So there are conspiracies, certainly. Well, evil men don't stand alone. Evil men can't exist unless there are evil people around them to support them. And it's a numbers game. Yes, and they can always appeal to evil. There is a... It's a, the easiest sell. It's the easiest sell. And that's why evil is so successful on the short term, but not on the long term. It's an easy sell because it appeals to so many people. Well, uh, you mentioned earlier the desire for power. George Orwell talked about that in 1984, and he summed up the goal of all uh, socialistic left-wing politics as this, a boot stamping on a human face forever. Mm -hmm. The epitome of total power. We see it in a variety of areas. Now, going back to the ancient Greeks and to Plato, you find that they talked about overpopulation. It's hard for us to imagine that they were overpopulated then, but they thought they were. In the French Revolution, the revolutionaries were trying to decide 
what percentage of the population should be eliminated? 10, 20, 40, 50 percent? So that they could have a workable control of the people. Well, you have the same thing today. And the Muslims and the Pope prevented uh, Vice President Gore and our State Department from turning that whole conference into a population control thing comparable to what is going on in China where everyone is limited to one birth, which, by the way, is partly financed by us. So conspiracies work to gain control over others, a brutal, evil control. Whereas those who see the problem as sin see not control but salvation as the solution. So the two areas are worlds apart. And as long as you have the humanistic approach, you're going to have problems because there are people on all sides of the political fence who are sure that the problem is conspiracies. Well, they will. <laughs> I always uh, get this picture in my mind of the people that chase conspira uh, conspiracies are like kids going along looking under every rock for uh, some favorite insect or lizard, you know, something that uh, uh, they're desirous of finding. And, uh, you know, they just keep looking in the wrong place, but it doesn't slow them down. <laughs> they keep on looking. They're absolutely convinced that that's where they're going to find their answer. Well, it's interesting that, uh, oh, the famous journalist out of San Francisco who wrote quite a bit on politics and went to the Soviet Union and said, I have seen the future and it works. Lincoln Steffens. Lincoln Steffens once told a bishop that uh, he felt the church's interpretation of uh, the Garden of Eden story was altogether wrong. And he said, you people see it as sin. For me, the problem was the apple. It was economic it was a will to possess. And he said, that's the problem. So capitalism is the evil, not sin. That's a stretching a point. Yes. <laughs> but he was very good at that, mm -hmm. stretching a point. Well, I've, you know, in, in my younger years, puzzled, you know, having grown up through World War II and puzzled about uh, how do people like Hitler... Uh, come into being and Stalin and uh, some of these monsters that have been produced in the 20th century and uh, it's almost as if it's inevitable that there's always somebody out there who has this visceral dislike for people uh, this terrible longing and lust for power and they go searching for a constituency. I 
uh, was in uh, Germany in Munich uh, right after World War II and met a fellow there who had watched Hitler get up on the bench, took me over to the bench, showed me where they had carved their uh, uh, initials into this bench. The bench is still there on the ground floor of the Hofbrau House in Munich, Germany. And uh, nobody was listening to him. Everybody in the room was drinking beer and singing and having a good time. And here's Hitler and his two guys up there yelling, screaming away like, uh, a couple of geeks and you know in the steps of Sproul Hall at UC Berkeley and uh, nobody was paying attention to him but little by little one at a time they began to listen and they began to gather a following and gradually uh, it spread and spread like a cancer and uh, there's these there's these people out there you know the Jerry Browns of the world uh, whose guiding philosophy was find which way the crowd is going and get around in front and say, follow me. And it seems like, you know, there's there's one born every minute. There's, a, there's an Adolf Eichmann being born every minute. There's another uh, 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 Joseph Stalin or Adolf Hitler out there looking for a constituency uh, that he can, uh, where he can seize power. And, and rule people's minds. And people have to be constantly on guard for those kind of people. I recall years ago reading an account by someone who knew the old Russia, who visited there maybe a decade or so after the revolution and saw the horrible change how miserable things were and he was talking with someone maybe they had known each other before and therefore the man was ready to talk and he said I cannot understand why with conditions so terrible Nobody is making a stand against it. And the man looked at him. You don't understand, he said. We, when they talked to us, the Bolsheviks, were ready to go along with them out of envy for the rich and the successful. Mm-hmm. And so we helped them destroy those people and we know we deserve what we have. Guilt creates a bad conscience, and guilty men are not free. And that's why there was no successful movement against Lenin and Stalin, because the people knew their guilt. They had known the truth, but they thought, well... If we do this, we'll get more land. We'll seize the Lord's land, or we will seize his properties. And they were very ready to do that, in not effect, realizing they would be next. In effect, they, they fell uh, into sin because yes. of greed and avarice. Uh, they turned away from the faith. Mm-hmm. 
and we're following the same track in this country. Well, in the last hour we were discussing Catherine the Great, or I was, and the disillusionment she felt. The people did not want freedom. They preferred an autocracy. And what they wanted to do then was to sit back and call attention to what was wrong, to blame her, and then to conspire against her. This was what they wanted. So the conspiracies against Catherine, none of them successful, were created by the fact that these people did not want freedom and they did not want responsibility. She must have been one of Bill Clinton's professors at Oxford. <laughs> well, she came to know better very quickly and found she could do nothing about it. Sadly, uh, she was trapped in other ways, by the way. She has a terrible reputation with most people as having a whole series of lovers, which she did. But the problem was she could not marry. If she had married a, a Russian, there would have been a revolution because of the other lords and uh, princes of the realm would have been enraged that she had chosen anyone uh, other than themselves. If she had chosen a foreigner, she herself being German, they would have said, we will have a totally foreign family, and they would have revolted and killed her. So she could only take lovers. And they didn't last very long because they would become targets. So uh, as soon as they could get what they wanted out of her, they took off. And uh, Potemkin, who was the, perhaps one she thought the most of, made a point of living as far away as he could and coming in <laughs> occasionally so he could survive. <laughs> and he was able to accomplish uh, some good. But uh, then she had only some of the royal guards, a series of lovers there, and none of them liked being a lover to an old woman, even though she was the empress. So she had really a sad life. She wanted to bring freedom to Russia, and she found they did not want it. They wanted to conspire against her, who was doing everything to uh, try to further the country. In fact, she's called Catherine the Great because... She did make Russia a great country. She greatly extended its territories uh, southward, taking over Muslim areas, uh, and uh, was quite remarkable. But uh, what she could do was only extend the realm. She couldn't convert it to freedom. I've noticed uh, on PBS and uh, some of the network uh, news magazine stations recently that there's been one after another hit piece uh, against uh, 
the what is termed the Christian right. Yes. Uh, there is a Christian left, and there's a Christian center, but uh, they're never mentioned. Uh, the Christian right is being um, uh, demonized. Uh, Christians in general, rather, are being demonized and all lumped together into this all-inclusive Christian right. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, the networks, uh, particularly uh, uh, ABC, uh, has done uh, hit pieces recently uh, going after various people in the uh, Christian community as if they are conspiratorial and trying to bring the country down, etc., etc. And um, th this is not a new phenomenon, is it? I mean, historically, this is, this is not new. Well, the Romans said the Christians, the lions. And I believe it was Tertullian who said that whenever anything goes wrong, in the Roman Empire, the Christians are to blame. It is interesting that uh, a couple of people high up in uh, the pantheon of the left have played theologian lately. Maya Angelou has said that uh, it's good that Marion Barry is running again or mayor of Washington, D.C., because the very fact that he's a convicted criminal um, makes him more ready to understand the people. Mm -hmm. So her thesis is that you uh, gain uh, a heart and understanding by becoming a sinner. And uh, Clinton, the other day, justified his... Uh, favoritism to homosexuals and lesbians on the grounds that, well, God made us to be sinners, so we have to accept sinners as they are. Well, I like the one about Marion Barry where they said that he would probably uh, ride to his inauguration in a car with license plates that he made himself. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe some, with some drugs on his person. Sure. Well, it's a sad commentary that the capital of the country is going to be presided over by a convicted felon. Well, the condition of Washington, D.C. was predicted by some who oppose self-rule. But no attention was paid to them, and nobody now looks back and says, they were right. Maybe we should listen to those men. So today, Washington, D.C. is a national eyesore. Well, our failure as a country to take sin seriously is an appalling fact. On television today in the news, professional athletes were seen, shown, going into the public schools to tell children the solution to their problem was self-esteem. And if they thought more highly of themselves, they would not be involved in some of the 
illegal activities many of them uh, were uh, taking part in. Self-esteem. That's a, that's a cliche that's even affected on um, the the popular psychology now that's infiltrated yes. that the the evangelical right and that self-esteem and building self-esteem. Well, kids who spray paint buses <laughs> and, and quit graffiti think think too highly of themselves as far as I'm concerned and their own and their own self-worth. Hoodlums think too highly of themselves. Mm -hmm. they, they need a little humility rather than a little self-esteem. Um, but well, this is a common theme. Yes, they caught one man who was teaching the art of graffiti, spray painting on an apartment building. Mm -hmm. Wasn't that in San Francisco? I forget just where it happened, but well, well, it did. It's too bad they can't put them to work painting the Golden Gate Bridge. <laughs> I mean, that's a never-ending job. They just yeah. go from one end to the other, yeah. back and forth. Uh, you know, get some. Uh, if they were sentenced to uh, 500 hours of community service, and uh, they spent that time painting, uh, doing a regular paint job on some uh, public building, it might serve some useful purpose. They might get tired of it after a while. One of the things that has been especially damaging to the Christian cause in this century has been the rise of psychology. Now, psychology literally means the doctrine of the soul, and it was once a branch of theology. But it has become totally humanistic and psychology has ridiculed the idea of sin and it has said that uh, the family in particular or the environment generally is to blame for people's behaviors which is a way of saying you are not guilty someone did this to you and that has been extremely uh, destructive you could call it secular dispensationalism. Yes. <laughs> but we would have to say that uh, it fits in with a whole conspiracy thesis because when you say that someone else is to blame rather than yourself, the devil made me do it, as Flip Wilson used to say, you are saying it was a conspiracy and I'm the victim, not the perpetrator. And that approach has become so endemic in our culture that uh, very small children have picked it up. I recall very vividly, I believe this was in... 1954 when I was pastor of a church we had a daily vacation Bible school and there was this one boy of about seven who was a terror his uh, mother spoiled him rotten because she felt sorry for him since the father had uh, abandoned them. The stepfather didn't want to discipline him 
feeling that that might be out of line and resented because he was a stepfather. So the kid was getting away with whatever he wanted. And he was in the daily vacation Bible school. They had this one teacher who was very soft-hearted, too prone to uh, go along with liberal ideas, although she professed to believe the Bible from cover to cover. And so she felt sorry for poor Gregory. That poor boy was just reacting. And uh, Gregory was only seven, but he knew a patsy when he mm-hmm. saw one. And he really... Called working the crowd. <laughs> yes, he really uh, worked that woman. Drove her crazy. But she gritted her teeth and kept on with her syrupy love bit. And on Friday of that first week, Gregory went too far. And she lost control of herself. And she went after him with blood in her eye. And there was no escape. He was off in a corner. And he saw her coming down at him. And he threw up his hands and said... Don't you hit me. Don't you hit me. What I need is love and affection. <laughs> he had the lingo. Yeah, well, that's what all of the prisoners in the prisons say. Uh, they want the color TV sets and the exercise yes. uh, paraphernalia. Well, the, the psychology approach is circular reasoning that leads to no resolution of people's problems, and that's what, you know, they're, they're not cured. No. Uh, of anything. The problem persists. It goes on. It's transference. They transfer the guilt to somebody else, but it doesn't really solve that person's dilemma. And you cannot solve anything if you are not the guilty person. You can only solve it by killing the other person, really. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one reason why there is so much murder today, perhaps, because people see the solution as getting rid of someone. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think the founding fathers of this country were very aware that uh, we'd get on, go off the deep end in a hurry without uh, Christian moorings. Mm-hmm. And that's the reason there's so many references uh, in the early uh, documents and uh, letters uh, between these men that they, they knew that without that anchor that we would go the way that all other cultures had gone before. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's the norm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Loss of freedom, authoritarianism is the norm. And freedom was a product of Christianity. Mm-hmm. And by creating a system based upon freedom, they knew it couldn't last unless the basis of freedom lasted. Well, when all of the people today have turned over every rock and tried every other possibility, uh, you would think that human intelligence, that human intellect, would finally go back to what works. Mm-hmm. Out of frustration, if nothing else, that they would go back to what works. So that, that's another fallacy of the conspiracy theory regarding that there's a small group of men taking away our freedom and, mm-hmm. and uh, 
brain brainwashing us in our schools. Well, they may be doing that, but there's but it's a, easy. Yeah, but there's a very large let of a very large group letting them get away with it. Yes, because that's what they want. Yeah. Well, this matter of blaming somebody else, you usually blame somebody close to you. That's why the locale of violence and murder today is so often the family or someone near and close to you. They are the problem, and if you get rid of them, supposedly, then you will solve the problem. Some years ago, in the 70s, this policeman told me that uh, he had a way of handling uh, domestic disputes. And he said they're the most dangerous. And that's where you can get hurt most of all. He said when a call would come that uh, there was violence in a family, uh, he would uh, go there and uh, very often the door would be open. Whoever placed the call would leave the door open and he'd knock and then he'd walk in. He said, I would always go over to the television and turn it on a bit on the loud side. And they'd be arguing around me and I'd turn to them and say, will you please shut up? I can't hear what uh, is going on in this program. And they would turn on him. Mm -hmm. Well, the nerve of you. And uh, they'd become very loving towards one another and concentrate on him and uh, he would say, well, is everything okay with the two of you? Of course there is. So he'd leave. Yeah. Yeah. They had a target, and it was someone other than themselves. He provided it. Sure. Why well, children often blame broken homes on the parents that stays. Mm -hmm. What did you do that dad left or that mom left? That's very yes. common. Our culture encourages to them, plus the fact that we're all sinners. We, Adam and Eve started it in the Garden of Eden because when God confronted Adam, he said, uh, the woman that thou gavest to be with me, she did give me and I did eat. So it's your fault, God. You gave her to me and she led me into sin. And the woman, her attitude was, well, I'm a sweet, innocent thing, and that sweet-talking serpent, the tempter, he led me to do this thing. So on that day began conspiracy theories. Somebody else had to be blamed. And we've been doing it ever since, and it's an aspect of sin. The worst part of it is that today sound biblical teaching and sound doctrine have given way in the church to pop psychology. Very early after World War II, uh, psychology books, pastoral psychology books, replaced Bible and theology in the pulpit. I just received a couple of catalogs from two different publishers. 
probably in the Christian uh, world of publishing two of the three or four biggest publishers and I could get whatever book I wanted from the catalog to review and I went through both and there was only one book in the two that I would have felt was worth reading and possibly reviewing because what they're putting out is trash it is pop psychology and if they go through the uh, Bible they'll take a book how Daniel handled his personal problems how the characters in Genesis handled their personal problems and so on all of which has nothing to do with the Bible conflict resolution and all these other yes Pop psychology terms. Darlene, we went to a conference in a Christian school conference in Sacramento this last week. And you never know what you're going to get when you go to these <laughs> these talks because they, they get dozens and dozens of, of speakers and some are good and some are average and some are um, very poor. Darlene went to one uh, of the seminars um, on uh, handling stress in the school and she said he began this is like a 45 minute uh, session he prayed for 20 minutes and she said I fell asleep and they said well you learned how to deal with your stress (laughs) 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 and then she left but um There's a lot of this in the Christian school movement, um, too, this pop psychology that, that's infiltrated in dealing. And there are a lot of, a lot of schools now in, this, in the metropolitan areas are quite large. And they feel a real pressure, to which many of them have come, of doing things like the public school does them, because they want to be viewed as being professional. Therefore, they're very much into the psychology and how do you deal with the problem child. They're very much into, um, well, if a child has a, a reading problem, you better send them to a professional to diagnose the reading problem. Well, a lot of that's come from Dobson. Uh, yes. Uh, I think the question of stress is very interesting because when I was growing up, when I went to the university, nobody talked about stress. Uh, about the only time you heard the word used was in terms of engineering and construction. Mm-hmm. But it began to spread, and more and more people became concerned about stress in their work, whether it was teaching, the pastorate, uh, the medical profession, and so on. And uh, 
Well, if you have stress, then you have to have people who take care of it. You have to have professional, health care professionals who take care of it. If you follow the money, every one of these things that's been created always winds up in creating new job opportunities for people in the public school sector. You have to have people to teach it, you have to have people to administrate it, and you have to have people to explain it. And that creates a whole bunch of job openings for people, and it's a continually expanding uh, sphere that never stops. I recall some years ago when the concept of stress was coming in and teachers and other professionals were being stressed out. This old teacher was amused by the whole thing because he said it's my job to make sure the students feel the stress. Right. Yeah. A lot of the problem with the, the pop psychology is um, and why it's easy to infiltrate into, for instance, the Christian school movement, is it, it's pop psychology starts with a grain of truth. They don't start from, here are our presuppositions, let's start with Freudian psychology. They say, and they'll start with something like, you know, life can be difficult, there's stress. Now, here's how are we going to handle it? Or they'll start with, you're going to have a problem child. Where are the problems coming from? They're coming from things you can't control. And they start with a little grain of truth about, yeah, the child's reacting to what he sees at home. That's now how, it's, how are we going to deal with that? And they start with a grain of truth, and then they bring extraneous ideas um, into it. And people, because they're not used to thinking, now what is this man's thinking? What are his assumptions? And where is this secular psychology, where, is, where are these uh, anti-Christian ideas now seeping into our school? Because they don't come up front and say, we're going to approach this from a Freudian perspective, we're going to approach this from a, a humanistic perspective. They, they slip it in, and they, they start with a grain of truth, and then they slip it in, and the schools have just kind of been suckered into it. Well, the problem with all of the stress management emphasis is that it really disables people uh, from being able to handle the normal stresses of life. It, they become a hot cycle, you know, I hate to use the term, but they become hothouse plants. Uh, they have uh, their ability to handle... Uh, any kind of a situation, uh, stressful situation, uh, lessens. It doesn't increase. You can only increase your ability to handle stress by handling stress. Uh, life is stressful. It's always been stressful, and it's always going to be stressful. And that's what people don't want. They don't want uh, life on God's terms. Yeah. They want life in terms of their imagination as to what it should be. They want to be cushioned from life, really. Well, that's what make, that's uh, what uh, disables them, because yes. over time they're not able to handle anything, and we've got lots of people running around who can't hand, handle any level of stress any longer, because they've been so protected. Yes. I know a man who really broke down mentally because he was constantly protecting his wife from stress. And it took next to nothing, the slightest disagreement or argument, and 
she was uh, in a state of near collapse or at least acting as though she were and uh, he was entirely uh, attuned to reacting to that sort of thing. It's the the Southern Bell Syndrome where they faint (laughs) the slightest provocation. Well, this was about uh, 1950 or thereabouts, maybe a little later, and uh, he actually uh, had a total mental collapse. And I don't think he ever made a real recovery. He was a broken man after that. And she was as healthy as a horse as far as I was concerned. And nothing really fazed her, but uh, she had grown up with that kind of attitude towards life, and she demanded that uh, nothing stressful occur around her. If you could write a biblical perspective on stress by saying it all begins within the sweat of thy brow shalt thou eat bread. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Well, the Bible is the only stress manual that works where there's an resolution for all problems. This is totally inappropriate, but that poor man really went off the deep end because of his wife and his absolute conviction that she was a priceless jewel and he had to do everything to please her. And uh, his collapse became apparent in peculiar things he did in order to laugh. And one of them that I recall, I'd forgotten it totally and it hadn't thought of it for 40 years or more. He uh, wore a Homburg and he filled it with peanuts, put it on his head, and uh, when he met someone out on the street or in front of a store, he tipped his hat and all the peanuts came cascading out and he laughed and laughed over that. And uh, people realized something is wrong here. (laughs) 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 To my knowledge, never uh, felt that his wife was anything but the victim she claimed to be. And that's what destroyed him. Well, I think uh, I find it difficult to believe that uh, anybody with an IQ over 10 has got to know when they're kidding themselves, when they're blaming somebody else for their own uh, uh, sin or their own problems. Uh, all of the people running around today who want to sue because of this or sue because of that, uh, I think down deep they know, and it must gnaw at them. It really must gnaw at yes. them. I, you know, it's hard to believe that there, there are people running around who are so uh, cynical and so detached that there isn't some tiny particle of guilt way down in their gut that tells them that they're doing the wrong thing. It has to gnaw at them. Yes. 
Well, one of the sad facts today is that we have all these explanations, conspiracies, uh, the environment, other people, one way or another. And I believe the trouble goes back to the churches. They have not been preaching the fact that man is a sinner, that our basic problem personally and in every sphere of life is sin. Now, they cannot preach Christ as the Savior unless they let people know they are sinners and that they do need a Savior. And it's been the failure of the churches in this area that has led to all this type of thinking. Before the war, there was still a fair amount of hard-headed preaching on the fact of sin. Uh, nobody talked about conspiracies then, but it has since taken over. It's the environment, it's psychological problems, it's other people, it's the context of our life, where we are, and so on, that is the problem. Well, our time is nearing an end. Uh, is there some kind of final statement or additional statement that you would like to make? Douglas, would you like to go first? Well, I think, you know, people have to look inside themselves and uh, deal with the true uh, nature. Uh, we all confront, uh, have to confront the sin. We have to deal with it. Uh, once we've dealt with it, the stress goes away, uh, the guilt goes away, and uh, you're free. And it's such a relief. And it doesn't cost anything. You don't have to go to, you don't have to make an appointment. You can do it anywhere, anytime. And uh, there's no fee. And uh, it's... Uh, it's the only free lunch. I think a lot, a lot of, uh, a lot of the leaders of the evangelical churches have followed the lead of, uh, is it Philip Schuler? Schuler in the Crystal Cathedral. Oh no, uh, Bob Schuler. Uh, Bob Schuler. Okay. They followed his lead. He says he won't preach that man is a sinner because it degrades, it's degrading to people. It demeans them. Well, I think we have to begin with the fact that sin demeans people, that men are sinners, and sin does demean them, and they have to deal with the sin because he assumes that men aren't basically sinners and that they're good and that you can start with the goodness in man. One of the things I've been working on off and on for the past few years is a small book on confession. Confession of sin, confession of the faith, confession. And confession has largely gone out of the church. Catholics used to go to confessional faithfully regularly but since Vatican II confession uh, is not as common and I am told that in some churches you have to uh, hunt to find uh, the confessional box uh, 
Episcopalians have the general confession in their service, but they no longer speak much about it in their services. Uh, Protestant churches used to stress very heavily the fact of sin and the need for salvation and the necessity for the confession of sins. But there's very little about that. The fundamentalists preach uh, salvation, but they're very vague on the doctrine of sin. They don't go into it at any great length or specifically. And they tend to reduce the whole concept to sins, not sin. Mm -hmm. They'll take up uh, drinking and smoking and gambling and fornication and so on and so forth. And therefore, Christ is going to save you from these. But sin is something different from sins. Sin has to do with our desire to be our own God, our rebellion against the law of God, our hatred of it. And that no longer is dealt with. So it's no wonder that the world around the church is so far astray from the truth. I do believe that when the churches begin again to preach the whole counsel of God and to stress the fact of sin, not just sins, you will see an end of this victimization idea of conspiratorial ideas and doctrines and a realistic view of what we are and a fuller realization of who Christ is and what salvation is. Well, thank you all for listening and God bless you. Authorized by the Calcedon Foundation. Archived by the Mount Olive Tape Library. Digitized by Christrules.com.